Good morning. <laughs> it's a, a very strange experience this morning. I got to remember to look at the camera. Normally, I just ignore the camera, but uh, I'll try to remember to look there as well. Um, we just got a text from um, Leo and Valerie, and uh, they said they got all dressed for church and they were toasting a bagel. So I just thought that was the greatest thing. And um, it, part of the uh, interesting thing for me right now is to just imagine where you are. You know, are you still in bed and watching on your iPad? Are you sitting at your computer um, at the breakfast table? It's just, uh, it's just amazing. Obviously, we've been streaming uh, all along, but uh, this is so different knowing that the primary connection point that we have this morning is through the camera and you all just watching us from wherever you are. So uh, relax, enjoy that bagel, Leo and Val. And uh, we'll get into it. There is a smattering of some of our staff here today, which is lovely because I don't have to just talk to myself in in an empty room. Uh, But just know that we are under the limit and we're practicing the social distancing, except for maybe John. No, it looks like John is even practicing social distancing now. Thank you, John. but uh, it's, it's great to just be able to continue to connect. I don't know about you all, but this last week has been tough. And I've talked to a lot of our members, and it's been isolating. It's been scary. There's been a lot of things that have just, you know, kind of taken the wind out of our sails. And uh, for some of you with small children... It's been increasingly chaotic. Uh, the, the kids don't understand why they can't have play dates, and kids don't understand why. And it was raining to boot, right? So it was just really difficult with kids bouncing off the walls. But everything that we've been through hopefully is having the intended effect, and we are getting to the point where we can be a lot more safe uh, from everything that is going on right now. I suppose the, the best word that I can use to describe the, this last week and everything that's been happening is surreal. Surreal. We use that word a lot, but it means a bizarre combination of elements. It means something that is almost hallucinatory or dreamlike, makes you think that you're in a dream. And this is the way it's been. I don't know about for you all, but the way it's been for me has been this feeling that I'm in a kind of a bad B movie. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? You know, one of those post-apocalyptic, dystopian kind of movies. We're, in, we're actually reading the script, and we've all seen the movies, so many of these movies that have all these elements, the empty streets and, and people hunkered down and the empty shelves at the grocery store and, and the lines wrapped around and so on and so forth. It's, it's, just, been, it's just been so weird to actually be living this. And I can go sometimes because I like to turn off the news and really not pay attention to that. So I can go for long stretches during the day and absolutely forget that anything's wrong. It just seems so normal. You know, the sun is shining or the rain is falling, which I love. And uh, everything just seems, you know, the dogs are still the dogs. They're doing what they do. And for long stretches of time, I forget. And then something will snap me back in to awareness and realize, oh, yeah. We're going through this stuff. And it's a sense of living through a redefining moment in history. Are any of you feeling that? That even though we're going to get through this, life may not ever be the same on the other side. There are big things that are happening, big things that are changing. Kind of like 9-11. 20 years ago, 9-11, can you imagine practically? Life may not be the same afterwards. And for better or worse, that's going to happen. A lot of things are changing right now to combat the virus. 
a lot of the red tape restrictions are being lifted. Um, doctors can now practice across state lines. Hospitals are being opened up so that they can add more beds when they need to. Uh, FDA restrictions are, are being lifted so that drugs can come through quicker. A lot of the things that have been in place and really kind of hamstringing the medical industry for generations are being lifted. And hopefully a lot of the ones that work and do well will continue on so that there'll be less restriction, less red tape, be able to get help where it's needed more quickly. On the other side, there's going to be probably less civil liberties, just like there were after 9-11. Some of the things that were put in place will, will still be there. And so we don't know what the mix is going to be, and that's part of what's scary here. Um, but it's going to change. It has to change. So many things are changing right now. And everybody has an opinion about it. Have you noticed that? Everyone has an opinion uh, there's, a, there's an old joke that if you have two Jews in the room, you got three opinions. I'm sort of feeling that way. You know, when you look at, uh, at, you, uh, at, at what's going on in social media or you're just looking at the news or whatever, everybody's got these opinions and they're all contradictory. You know, on one hand, there's so many people that are still saying, you know, that this whole thing is, is, is overblown, and there's others that are saying it's this grave threat. And they've all got their facts and figures and ideas to try to, to prove that, but it's, it's all just in contradiction with each other. Um, you've got the, uh, the millennials down in Florida who are still partying on, on, the, on the beaches and have no intent of doing anything else. I, I saw some news reports where news reporters were talking to some of these, these kids on the beaches, and they're saying, ah, this is not such a big thing. And, of course, for them, they're at a low-risk category, and nothing's going to stop me from partying. You know? and, and you've got that whole attitude, and then you've got the people who are so completely petrified by what's going on and, and, and just believe that this is a huge threat to us. There's those who believe that we're not doing enough and the, and the government is not doing enough and there's not enough being done and people aren't taking this seriously. And then you've got the other side that are saying that this is a, an overreaction and some kind of needless destruction of our economy, destruction of our way of life and business and so on and so forth. And there's these heated fights that are going on between people. At the end of the day, when you think about it, none of that really matters. We are where we are right now. We have to deal with what is right here and right now. We're here. We're in the situation. This is where we've come to as, as, a, as a society. And the only thing that's left for us to do is to accept it. Accept what is here and find our own personal way forward. Not the way that is being, you know, deliberated, you know, in the news and not anybody's idea that's coming across on social media, but our own personal way. How are we going to move forward? And I've been asking myself that question, not just for me and for my family, but also as a pastor and as part of our community here, how can I help best? What is the way that I can really help it was suggested to me that I should have much more of an online presence. I should um, be focused on social media, maybe doing lots of uh, videos and other th- ways of getting ideas out there. And obviously it was a way to go, but as I was looking at social media over the first couple of days of this week, there is just so much chatter out there. It's incessant, and it's all about the virus, and there's all these suggestions, and, and you're hearing from everybody all at the same time, and it's just this huge 
din of noise. Have you ever gone to a, a family dinner and everybody's talking at once and they're, they're so loud and everything is just slamming, you know? Anybody here an Italian? <laughs> there you go. It's, it's like nobody's taking a breath. Everybody's talking consistently and, and constantly. And it, you're, you have to fight your way in if you want to fight. But, you know, my personality is if I'm in a dinner like that, I just hang back. I just pull back. I figure no one really needs another voice in this situation. And uh, nobody's really listening anyway. And so what the heck? Let's just watch it. And it, it kind of becomes entertainment. It's like watching everybody interact. And have, you know, that's my personality. And that's kind of was my reaction to trying to jump in uh, online for social media and really try to find uh, a way to help people or impact people uh, in the media in that particular way. Um, and so what I was doing was watching the different kinds of pandemic posts, maybe that's a little viral thing, the pandemic posts that have been going through. And I realized that they are of several different types. And um, one of them was the real serious ones. These are the hard news kind of posts that are, that are going around. It's people talking about what's going on and, and you know, there's some conspiracy theories going on in there. But it's very serious and this is, a, this is the threat. Here's what's going. Here's what you can do. Here's what's happening. Uh, a lot of political you know, commentary uh, from just everyday people in this serious threat, you know, the, decrying the president or the government, what they're doing or praising or whatever it is, but it's very serious and it's very focused. And then on the flip side of all that, you got the jokes and, and people trying to lift spirits, but with humor. And of course, the toilet paper jokes are everywhere. And uh, that it's, some of them are pretty good. I don't know if you've been following any of those. Uh, I saw one that was a little video, and it was a guy at Starbucks buying his coffee uh, by tearing off little sheets of toilet paper and, and uh, counting them out and handing it to the guy. And the last one, he, he stuffs into the shirt pocket of the barista who responds with this huge grin of, of gratitude. Um, there was one where uh, a young man wakes up on a beautiful morning in the year 2056, but as he knows that it's a special day. Because this is the day that he'll be using the last roll of toilet paper that his parents bought in 2020. I know you're laughing out there just a little bit, right? So there, you've got the jokes, uh, you know, as a as kind of counterpoint to all the seriousness that's going on out there. And then you have the spiritual and philosophical kind of posts. These are the ones that are saying, hey, you know, it's this is a time for us. It's forced, but it's a good force because it's a time for us to simplify our lives to stop producing so much and creating all the pollution. It's time to let the planet heal. It's a time where you're seeing families have a chance to come back together again and, and reconnect, and, and it's all beautiful. And, and there's, some, you know, there's some reality behind that. I heard that the canals in Venice are as clear as they've ever been, that dolphins are swim, swimming up the estuaries and swans are landing in the water because the gondoliers and motorboats aren't stirring it all up. So, yeah, that's true. And so they're, they're, they're putting this out there is that this is a good time for us to be able to simplify and calm down. But what I started thinking about is for those people who are out of work, for those people who don't have income coming in, wondering how they're going to pay their rent or their mortgages, for those who have loved ones who have gotten ill, who maybe have died, are we getting into a place where 
even though what we're saying can be true, it's trivializing the pain that's really going on out there. We often hear about well-meaning Christians you know, trying to comfort someone who's just lost a loved one by saying, well, they're, they're an angel now in heaven and God needed them there, or such comments where they're trying with words to comfort, but really all it does is drive the knife deeper. And so sometimes in our well-meaning efforts or what we may believe at a philosophical level doesn't take into account what individuals are going through. And it could really hurt and drive the knife deeper. Now, some seem that, that these were comforting sayings to them, and that's wonderful. But for others, maybe not so much. And then the last category that I see are the practical ones, the ones that are trying to shake us up to reality and bring us back down again. And these kind of go along the lines of, I heard one that was, you know, your parents' generation was called to war. You're called to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. You know, get over it. Wake up. Get over it. There is these, these uh, ideas and, and, and uh, bringing to mind and to people's remembrance what people went through during World War II and the rationing that took place there, which was so strict and so difficult for the people to live through as the country was gearing up for war production. And again, as true as these things may be, and relatively in terms of our pain, how, maybe how little we're suffering in comparison with other generations or other historical times, to ridicule someone's fear is also not helpful. There are generations now that have never experienced anything like this. Starting with the baby boomers, we've never experienced anything like this. Maybe a little bit of gas rationing in the 70s, but how many of us have ever seen empty shelves, except maybe right before a hurricane uh, in the southeast? Um, But those are pinpoints, and, and they're, they're for a finite amount of time. We don't know how long this is going to last. This is a scary time. And in scary times, being afraid is appropriate. You would be a foolish not to be afraid when things are so fearful and so uncertain. It's what we do with the fear that's going to define us, not the fact that we have the fear. And so once again, understanding this on an individual basis is what is so important. How do we move through and act in faith? What are the best things that we can say to each other, do with each other, that is going to help us all to move through this in a way that still matches our convictions, that still allows us to live like Jesus? And again, how is it that we can help? I decided that the first thing that I wanted to do was kind of like the doctor's Hippocratic Oath, was do no harm. And um, that's hard to do when you're talking in a mass group, when you are talking to everybody. Everybody's center, everyone's bullseye is at a different place. And one message is maybe going to help some others, and it's really going to hurt others. And so how is it that we can do this in a way that helps as many people as, as possible and does no harm to those who are really hurting, really going through something that's difficult? Being very careful not to trivialize other people's pain or to shame them for the fear that they feel. Anything that we do, I want it to be real, really dealing with what's, what's concrete, what's happening out there. It needs to be relevant. It needs to be practical. We need to 
avoid over-spiritualizing things, over-theorizing things, over-theologizing things, and avoid abstract messages that really don't get down to the real issues that people are dealing with. It's so easy to say, well, this is a time where we just need to trust God. And I've been seeing that over and over. This is the time when we just have to have faith, where we need to pray. And all those things are absolutely true. Absolutely true. But they're also very unhelpful when you're in the midst of the pain, when you're in the midst of the fear, when you don't know if you're going to be able to keep your household going. And so in the face of real fear, in the face of the financial and and health crisis that we're in, We've got to face issues squarely. We've got to face issues concretely. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus was never giving us abstracts. Jesus was never giving us over-spiritualized platitudes. He never talked to the people at that level. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what what they needed because he was in relationship with them. And he was able to deliver a message that always gave the next step through. Always gave a a concrete way forward. How do you deal with the things that you're dealing with? He gave us bedrock principles by which we could live. And his principles were very simple. And they're pretty much all the same. Establish personal contact. Absolutely, first and foremost, establish personal contact. You can't fly over at 30,000 feet and drop leaflets. You know, it's not going to hit people where they absolutely need it. So bringing your focus in to the person who is right in front of you and talking to them, but know who you're talking to. Know who it is that needs something so that you can see them as they are, meet them where they are, and provide what is really needed. Provide what love requires. How are you going to know what love requires until you actually see the person and have a relationship with them? Then you can respond with action that is relevant. Then you can respond with words that have a chance of hitting where they need to hit because now they can be grounded in love. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's really that simple. But how are you going to know what that is unless you establish contact first? Right at the end of of Mark 1 and moving over into the beginning of Mark 2, right across the line between the two chapters, it was probably an inconvenient place in retrospect to make the chapter break right there because Jesus does three healings all in succession. The first one at the end of Mark 1 and the, the, the next two at the very beginning of Mark 2. And since Mark puts them all together, all three healings, he's telling us by their context that the, they're, they're to be seen as a block. They have a meaning that, that all hangs together, and we can't miss that. The first thing he does in Mark 1 is to heal a leper. And then in Mark 2, he heals a paralytic. And then he calls Levi from the tax booth and, and has dinner with him. What's the common thread between those three? The common thread is they're all outcasts. Every single one of them is a social outcast. The leper, and this is very, you know, very relevant right now. The leper, by any, and a leprosy meant any kind of skin disease. If you had eczema, if you had leprosy itself, if you had anything, that automatically put you into quarantine. 
literally. You had to move outside the city gates. You couldn't live in your home anymore. You couldn't buy, sell, trade. You couldn't eat from another person. You had to call out if someone came near you saying unclean so that they could give you a wide berth. That was the ancient way of just stopping the spread of any kind of infectious disease. So if you were a leper, you were outside the city gates and you could no longer live in community. If you were a paralytic, if you had any kind of physical infirmity, it's because you sinned or your parents sinned or somebody sinned in order that that happened to you. And until you were shown to that your sins were forgiven, that you had made some sort of amends and you had been declared clean by the temple priests, again, you were seen as less than and outside the community. And of course, a, a tax gatherer, uh, a publican, the, the toll booth collector, who was a Jew basically working for the Romans, the occupying force, they were seen as complete, they were called beasts in human form by the Jews. And they were seen as collaborators with the Romans, and they were absolutely hated. All three of these men, outcasts, what is the first thing that Jesus does? When he comes upon the leper, and the leper tells him, if you are willing, you could make me clean. Jesus reaches out and touches him. I am willing. To touch the leper before he was healed made Jesus ritually unclean, made Jesus part of the contamination. He would have had to go through all of the ritual cleansing. He would have had to present himself to the high priest at the temple in order to be declared clean again. He breaks that ritual boundary by reaching out and touching the person first, establishing contact, understanding who it is that he is talking to before he delivers what is needed, the healing. The paralytic is the one whose friends lower him down, just dig a hole in the roof because the the house was too full and they couldn't get their friend in to see Jesus for a healing. So they dig a hole in the roof and lower him down. What is the first thing Jesus says to him? First, he calls him son. The word he uses there in Aramaic is the same word that he used for his closest ring of followers. He called them son. He calls him son. And he says, your sins are forgiven. They didn't lower him down to forgive sins. They lowered him down to get him healing, get healed of paralysis. But Jesus addresses the first things first. He first brings him into community. He says, you are as my son. You are as my closest friend and follower right now, right where you are. Your sins are forgiven. That separation between you and me and this community is wiped out. And of course, then he also heals him. Levi's working away at his tax booth, which would have sat right at men of the major crossroads of the thoroughfares, collecting tolls as, as travelers went through. Jesus walks past him and kind of over his shoulder on the way down the road, Hey, you, come follow me. What? Jesus breaks the ritual barrier with the, with the leper. He breaks the theological barrier with the paralytic by healing him before he went and presented himself and and announced that his sins were forgiven uh, before he went and and did ritually what he needed to do with the temple priest. And here he's breaking a social boundary by bringing this hated person who stood outside of the law and bringing him into his company. Touching, connecting, understanding who he's talking to before he tries to deliver any help. See, this is Jesus' way. This is the principle that he gives us. It's not about just 
checking boxes. It's not just about following sort of rules in an abstract theological or theoretical way. It's about really establishing connection, establishing relationship, so that everything follows really is healing, really is what is needed in the relationship. It's hard to do that in a macro setting. It's hard to do that over social media because it just blankets everyone and we don't necessarily know the relationship or the person who is receiving whatever is rescinding. Some can be helped, but others can be hurt and many can be completely ignored. And so what I tried to do this week is to focus on individual relationships. Those that I knew, reaching out to individuals and talking to them, texting them, connecting with them. A couple that I met with, and we tried to maintain our social distancing, but met with to talk through some of the issues that they're going through. Responding to the need. There was one woman who, on top of going through everything that is happening in our society today with the pandemic, and and she's older, so she's in one of the high-risk groups. Now she's facing a cancer scare as well and waiting for the biopsy results to come back. And so I met with her, and we sat kind of at a longer distance than we probably would have in our two chairs, but we talked. And as I was driving over to to meet her, I had no idea what I was going to say to her. I mean, what do you say to someone who's going through what she's going through? What do you say to someone who has all these things hitting at once? And I sat down with her, and I still didn't know what I was going to say, but I just listened to her and let her talk for a while. And as we talked, more and more things started coming to mind. More and more of what she was revealing to me allowed me to be able to speak back to her. And this conversation developed that I never would have predicted. And where we went... It was kind of like when you're clicking on links on the internet and you end up somewhere you never expected to go. That's kind of where this conversation went. And it turned out to be this beautiful conversation. And it helped me so much. The isolation that I've been feeling during the week and the disconnection I've been feeling without having our regular gatherings was erased in that moment just by being able to really connect with her and to see on her face a lessening of the burden that she was carrying, at least a sense that, that there was some kind of connection with, their, with her and with us. And in addition to that, I've just been inspired by the stories of so many other people around the country that have been doing similar things that have really been connecting. They have been literally channeling Jesus before our very eyes, if you want to think of it that way. In their actions, in the things that they're doing, I'm seeing the way Jesus operated in their very actions. Last week we talked about the fact that this is the best of times and the worst of times. We were kind of bringing in the the first line of Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities, great opening of the book. It's the best of times and the worst of times. In a very real way, this crisis is going to bring out the best and the worst in each one of us. And it is doing that. Yeah, we're seeing some really unlovely human behavior right now. We're seeing the hoarding. We're seeing violence. We're seeing um, some some looting and some of those type of activities. We're seeing the the fear that turns into hateful speech and and, uh, the disconnection between people. But we're also seeing people rising to great levels of the human spirit and helping people in ways. I pulled some stories together because... 
These were so inspiring to me. And I hope that if you haven't seen some of these, that it'll kind of let you know what's going on around the country and how people are reacting to all of this. There was in the Bay Area, um, they have a local newspaper there. And the staff was continuing to work and work around the clock and, and try to provide the community with the news and, and the type of stories that they needed. So a newspaper subscriber sent her local newspaper reporters pizzas. <laughs> While staffers at the Seattle Times were working nonstop to report and share information about the coronavirus outbreak in the Pacific Northwest, one local reader said thanks by way of pizza. She called and sent them, I don't know how many pizzas, but the whole staff got to eat. Would you think of doing that? That that is just so interesting. But think about it. That newspaper was a lifeline to her. She felt that last night. It was filling a need for her. It made her feel connected, and she just had to give back in some way. I love that. A woman helped an elderly couple get groceries. But listen to the story. This this young woman says, I went to the grocery store, and as I was walking in, I heard a woman call to me from her car. I walked over and found an elderly woman and her husband. She cracked her window open a bit more and explained to me nearly in tears that they were afraid to go in the store but didn't have family around to help them out. They were afraid they'd get sick as they are in their 80s and heard that the virus is hitting older people harder. Through the crack in the window, she handed me a $100 bill and a grocery list. Think about the trust there. You're handing a complete stranger a $100 bill and a grocery list and asked if I would be willing to buy her groceries. I bought the groceries and placed them in her trunk and gave her back the change. She told me that she had been sitting in the car for nearly 45 minutes before I arrived waiting to ask the right person for help. A couple of kids put on a concert for an elderly woman in quarantine. An elderly woman who was social distancing with the goal of staying healthy was treated to some music by her young neighbors. The two young cellists set up shop on her porch and played their instruments to the woman inside. There's actually a picture of this in the story of the two kids playing cello uh, right outside her front door uh, so that the woman had, again... Human, human connection points, sharing the talents that you have in ways that are so creative and so different. School teachers and others are delivering free packed lunches to pupils in self-isolation who depended on school meals after the schools were closed. A pre-med student at the University of Nevada, Reno, organized volunteers from her medical fraternity to do shopping for older local residents more vulnerable to covid A dentist in the Bay Area is offering free emergency dental services to ease the congestion at emergency rooms. A restaurant owner put out a message on Facebook offering any school kids and their families in need meals for free. No questions asked, and even though his restaurant is suffering from lack of business at this time, reaching out, touching, connecting as the first pass Connecting with people. Yes, some needs are obvious, but knowing who it is that you're helping is the key. Some of our folks here in the Effect community, one family delivered toilet paper and other supplies to an elderly member here. Another took another elderly member shopping so that she could get her own supplies. Took another to medical appointments, appointments that had to be made. Another helped with computer needs of someone who was shut in, but the computer was a lifeline for them. And another family brought an elderly member over to their house for dinner. And they said they tried to maintain their social distancing, but they had her over for dinner. Helping each other, looking and realizing the needs that are needed. 
One of our members um, had her grandson, six-year-old grandson, over for uh, most of the week this last week because, you know, kids are suddenly off from school and trying to get childcare right now. Are you kidding me? Families are really struggling trying to figure out how they're going to go to work if they still have jobs and care for their kids. So she took over her grandson uh, for several days this week. And I love the way she did this because she wanted to maintain social distancing. And she says she was a little afraid because you bring a little kid over there. Who knows where his nose has been, right? And so um, she was worried about that, but she made it fun. She sent me a couple of pictures. She has a, a refrigerator with those long vertical handles. So she taped toilet, a toilet paper band, or not toilet paper, a paper towel band around the midpoint of the handles. And Whenever he went to the refrigerator, he was to open below the toilet paper, the paper towel rolls, and she would use the upper so they would never connect that way. They, they put a, um, a string across the, the main hallway with a little sign to remember to yell to the other person when you were changing rooms so that they could maintain their social distancing, and they would blow kisses at each other throughout the day but try to stay apart. And they made it this game and made it fun, and they were having they're laughing and, and having the best time with this and making it kind of a joke but at the same time maintaining what needed to be maintained. But she did say at the end when her mom came to get her, he asked for a real hug, Grandma. And so he got a real hug at the very end. Creative ways. Keeping our sense of humor about this. Finding ways to make it a game at the same time. Doing what we need to do. Another member texted me and told me that she, for Lent, remember when Lent started? It seems like a lifetime ago, before all this craziness. And we were talking about trying to establish Lent as a, as a, a time of clearing the decks uh, for 40 days before Easter. And she said that she started practicing centering prayer, contemplative prayer, quiet time, you know, just centering time uh, every day for Lent. And she said now she's finding that it's really helping her as this crisis intensifies, as the lockdown ensued, that she was able to find that, that place of solace. And she said the the prayer is actually getting easier for her now that she's been doing it every day. But it's become this lifeline for her because she still got her job and she's out there and she says, you know, sometimes touching all that stuff says just makes me feel icky. You know, what am I, what am I picking up and washing hands? But then having that place of connection is making all the difference in terms of her internal space. Another person told me that everything that they have learned over the last several years here at The Effect in terms of establishing their, their contemplative spirituality has now really made a difference as all this is starting to come about. <laughs> My wife, Marion, was telling me that uh, she met with someone who really need, needed to disconnect, and they just met at the park, maintaining their social distancing. But she said as she was sitting at the park, she was just aware of everything that was going around. She said there was a pair of doves that were in the tree. And, of course, you know, doves mate for life, like pigeons and Catholics. Okay, so um, she said they'd be in the tree and then one would go down and then the other one would go down and they'd walk around together and then one would fly up and the other would fly up. But she was just watching them, you know, just as a pair doing what they do. There were squirrels running around. And at that moment, just nature, just that connection with it was one of those gorgeous right after the rain days, right? With the blue skies and crisp, clear air and everything just felt right Everything just felt connected. These are the things that we're all doing with each other, for each other, that makes such a difference. 
And just to finish off this little section, I got a text from, again, from one of our members. I want to read part of it to you because I think it just puts a cap on everything that I'm trying to say here. She wrote, In watching the news daily who report our global crisis with the coronavirus and request from the government to practice social distance, sanitize frequently, wearing masks and gloves while running to the store to buy more than they need out of fear, people are calling this the enemy. But as I reflect on my last few days, I don't see this virus as the enemy, but as a return to human basics of love, kindness, compassion, and support for one another. I see it in someone who took time out to talk to me in a time of personal crisis and giving me strength to go on. I see it in my neighbor, who is usually grumpy, but came to my door and delivered dog food and magazines. I see it in the person at Costco who gave me his toilet paper when I couldn't find any. I see it in the man who offered to help me carry my groceries and water with such care while telling me that we're all in this together and need to return to a world of care and kindness for one another. I see it in my friends who check on me daily and offer to help. I can go on and on as each person offers to help, pray, and provide for one another. I see mercy everywhere. So where is this enemy? I ask myself. Nowhere. Thank you all for showing me a reflection of God's love through your loving spirits as it touches my soul in such an amazing way that it's difficult to describe in words and can only be felt with the heart. That's it. These people are just as scared as everybody else, just as uncertain as anyone else, but they're acting on their convictions anyway. They're continuing to do what they know how to do, risking contact in some cases, like Jesus did, reaching out and touching that unclean man before he rendered any services, establishing contact. This is action that is simple. This is action that's real. It's concrete. It's not overly spiritualized or trivialized. It's direct and meaningful and helpful. And because it's all those things, it's intensely spiritual. What could be more spiritual than the connection between people? We see this most clearly in our medical workers. My gosh, these people, they're not working in the hospitals and in the clinics and what they're doing. Every day going in there without enough, they call them PPE now, is that uh, personal protection equipment, you know, without enough masks, without enough of, the, of what they need. But they're going in anyway. They're, they're, they're now called frontline workers, I think, is what they're called. And it even includes grocery store clerks. You know, They're still there with a never-ending stream of people going by there, and they're doing what they need to do. And there's a real threat to these people. We just heard yesterday that Marion's sister-in-law, I guess my sister-in-law too, who is a nurse, has now tested positive for COVID-19. So she's got it. And she's got asthma. And so there could be some complications there, but she's young and she's strong and I think she'll be fine, but it's freaky. And of course now her husband hasn't been tested, but he's got symptoms, so he's probably got it too. And so the whole thing starts to really hit home when it's now someone I know, someone we know, part of our family who has this. But she was putting herself out there every day, pediatric units, connecting with those kids. And that's a real threat but they're doing it anyway. So we see them risking 
touching others, continuing to do their jobs. I kind of laugh a little bit when the the media puts us into, or the government puts us into essential and non-essential categories. Okay, these are the essential categories. They need to this and this and this. Non-essential, stay home. You know, it's a little bit condescending that way. You know, I think I'm non-essential. But the truth is, we're all essential. If we choose to act that way, are we going to act in an essential way? Are we still going to put ourselves out there? Not irresponsibly, but when the need arises, when we have a relationship with someone, what are we going to do with our fear? Are we going to let it destroy us? Or are we going to allow it to take us where we really need to go? This is what it means to live faithfully. How do we live faithfully? It's not just a mental idea of we believe something. It is those who act in the midst of their fear. Those who live out the connection that love entails. It's those who act their way into a right mindset. It's those who live out their convictions in a way that literally changes the way that we look at life, this whole thing. For people to be able to maintain a sense of humor, of cheer, of poise, of calm, of service to one another, of other-centeredness. In the midst of your fear, that is doing what to you? putting you into a defensive crouch, telling you to build up the walls and just stock the place to the ceiling and just hunker down and wait for it all to pass, and yet you're still going out there, you're still connecting, you're still giving of yourself and of your resources to those who need it. I'll tell you what. You want to be cheered up? Then make someone laugh. You can't cheer yourself up. You can't just sit there and tell yourself to be cheerful. But you make someone laugh. Notice what it does to you. You want to be encouraged? Well, then empower someone else. Encourage someone else. See, the truth of the matter is the only way that we know that we actually possess something for ourselves is if we can give it away, no strings attached. Anything that is really yours is only yours if you can give it away with no strings attached, absolutely freely. When that happens, you know it's yours. You want to know if you have faith? Then you act faithfully in connection with somebody else. And then you know that you have that faith. And you do that a few times, and you start to actually have trust, and the anxiety drops. All of us living in fear, the more that we live the fear the more that kills the connection. But the more that we live the connection, the more that that eradicates the fear. It doesn't kill it off. The fear is still there. The uncertainty is still there. But more and more, we can continue to live and continue to do what our faith and our conviction has always told us to do with increasing amount of serenity, increasing amount of calm. We have to live it. That's the only way this works. Now, there is one issue that keeps coming up from people that is fanning the flames of fear. And I should probably mention it. We don't have time to go into it in depth, but maybe we can do that. And especially if this is something um, that is uh, of interest to you or is on your mind, please let us know. But this has to do with the end times. You know, people are looking at this in terms of end times. There's one major Christian leader who just came out 
made the statement that um, she believes that this is the end times, this is the beginning of the end time sequence, and we better get right with God before he comes. And a lot of that of other Christian leaders are echoing similar statements. This is a tough one. It fans the f- flames of our fear because it directly questions God's love. It questions the nature of the way God loves us. If these are the end times and we need to get right with God, then that is implying that there is this wrathful, angry, chastising God, this God who is looking for some sort of compliance with something. uh, And if we don't do it, if we don't perform in some sort of way, then we're going to be left on the outside. Obviously, that kind of punishing God that is implied in a statement like this is only going to arouse our fear. What I want to tell you today is that it completely misses the point of what apocalyptic literature is about in the Bible. Are we in the end times? Obviously, I have no idea. I can't know. None of us can know. Jesus said he didn't know when he was asked. Only the Father in heaven knows, is what Jesus said. Jesus is admitting that there are mysteries, there are things that he couldn't know, that he wasn't supposed to know as a human being living with us. And neither are we. We aren't given these kinds of answers. I don't think that we are. That is my my basic thought. And part of the reason for that is even if you do read the apocalyptic scriptures as literally as those who have interpreted them for us that are telling us that we are entering the end times, there's a lot of key factors, key trigger points that aren't in place yet for the end time sequence to begin. So how are you interpreting this and by what rules are you using? Or is it just an emotional thing that we say because the times are difficult right now? But remember this. Almost every generation since Jesus has believed that they were living in the end times Those first followers of Jesus believed that he was coming back in their lifetime. Read the epistles. They read the way they read because, especially Paul, because he was believing that Jesus was going to come back in his lifetime. It didn't happen. The craziness that went on at the turn of the first millennium, 1,000, everybody thought the Lord was coming back then. What happened at at the turn of the second millennium? Most of us can remember that. Remember, we all thought that this was going to be the end time. The computers were going to crash and every society and it was going to be beginning of the end time. Did that ever happen? Every time there is a major world crisis, people believe that the end time sequence is beginning, that the Lord is going to come back. Just a hundred years ago, World War I, 20 million people lost their lives in World War I. Practically entire planet at war. The world had never seen anything like it. People thought we were in the end times. Before that war had even completely finished, we had the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 and 1919. We can't even imagine the scale of this thing based on what we're going through right now. The Spanish flu, over half a billion people, 500 million people were infected. And estimates go from 20 to 50 million people dying from this epidemic, right on the heels of World War I where 20 million people died? And only what? 
15, 20 years before World War II began, where 75 million people died, soldiers and civilians. The first half of the 20th century was full. And then you had that Antichrist charismatic leader in in Adolf Hitler, who many believed was the Antichrist. Every generation has thought that they were in the end times. Most likely, this is just going to pass. Life may not look the same on the other side, and we're going to need to deal with it as a people. But life will continue, as it has continued through all these other points in history. But we don't know for sure, and we can't know for sure. But worrying about these things and allowing these beliefs or these fears to obscure the nature of God's love completely misses the point of what apocalyptic literature is all about. Even though the images in prophetic and apocalyptic literature are scary, they're scary for a reason. And the reason is not to inspire fear, but to inspire hope. It's so important for us to remember, prophetic books come before a national cataclysm. It's the run-up to the cataclysm that everybody can see who's really paying attention. The prophet is there to tell the people in no uncertain terms, you're about to go off a cliff. Stop. Repent, which means change directions and don't go off the cliff. Come back into connection with your God. Remember the things that you have forgotten. Reconnect in ways that you have not connected. And things are going to be fine. When the people don't do that, and they never do, right? Go off the cliff. Now you're standing in the smoking crater that was your society, that was your city, that was your temple. What do you do now? How in the world are the promises that your God has given you of continuation as a people, as being couched and embraced in his love, how does that continue when everything is gone that you knew? Your family could be gone. Try to imagine what that would be like. The apocalyptic literature is there to say that even in ways that you can't imagine, even if God has to insert himself physically into history, God's promises will never come back void. God's love continues and always will. That is the purpose of apocalyptic literature, to give us hope, to reconnect the people to their God, and to give them a way forward. We turn it upside down because we're just looking at the symbols, at the figures of speech, and we don't understand the intent underneath it. We can't know what this is in history. But what we can know is what the Bible is telling us is that there is never a reason to lose hope in this God to lose hope in the connection that God has given us. There is so much time and emphasis and ink in the Bible that is expended just to try to get this across to us, just to try to keep us connected when the world gets really scary. Fear not. Fear not. In all these ways, the message is fear not. Your God is constant. Your God is powerful. Your God loves you in a way that you can never, ever lose. But all the words in Scripture, all the words in the world, mine or anybody else's, can only point us toward the trust 
that the Bible is trying to get across to us. It's our own action that must take us there. The words can point, give us the direction. The words can show us the door. But we have to walk through. If we want trust, then we have to risk finding out whether God is really trustworthy. And this is how it works. It's our own action, acting in spite of the fear, in spite of the uncertainty, to keep connecting, to always connect. In another redefining moment in history, the assassination of of John F. Kennedy, his wife, his widow, uh, Jackie Kennedy, um, was left in a really, really difficult spot um, with two small children, um, trying to figure out how to make the transition out of power and just facing her own inner demons. Um, she was depressed. She was, I'm sure, there was post-traumatic stress and, and she was suicidal. And there's a movie called Jackie that depicts those first weeks after the assassination that was just brilliantly done, I thought. But what was most of interest to me was that there is a, a, a runner through the script and through the movie where Jackie is meeting successively with a Catholic priest um, just in counseling and trying to get herself through. And we see her spiritual growth through those few weeks in the subsequent meetings and counseling sessions with this priest who is played brilliantly by John Hurt, the great English actor, who himself was only weeks before his own death. He knew he had cancer. He knew he was dying. He chose not to treat it. And he chose to keep working. But I believe that his knowledge of his own situation was really informing his performance. As good as he was, this performance is, to me, electric, if you get a chance to see it. I just want to read through four quick little scenes just to see if we, as we're asking all the questions we're asking in our fear and our uncertainty, how would he have answered us? if we were in those sessions with him. Jackie says, I think God is cruel. Haven't we all said that at one time or another? I think God is cruel. The priest says, well, now you're getting into trouble. God is love, and God is everywhere. Was he in the bullet that killed Jack? Absolutely. Is he inside me right now? Yes, of course he is. Well, that's a funny game he plays, hiding all the time. The fact that we don't understand him, the priest says, isn't funny at all. You see where he's trying to point her? He can't tell her absolutely what she's looking for, but he's pointing her in a direction. The fact that we can't see him, God isn't hiding, but we can't see him. Not all the time, especially not in the middle of our grief. In the next scene, Jackie says, If there's a heaven, there's your God, with all his empty promises. What kind of God takes a father from his two little children and my two babies, Arabella in the womb and Patrick, 39 hours on this earth, just long enough to fall in love with him? What did I do to deserve this? Nothing. I lie awake at night and all I can think is I wish I'd been a shop girl or a stenographer. I should have married an ordinary, ugly, lazy man. (laughs) And the priest says, let me share with you a parable. Jesus once passed a blind beggar on the road, and his disciples asked, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was made blind so that the works of God could be revealed in him. 
And with that, he placed mud on the man's eyes and told him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And the man did, and he came back seeing. Right now, you are blind. Not because you've sinned, but because you've been chosen so that the works of God may be revealed in you. Next scene. Jackie says, I wrote a letter that night before we moved the casket to the Capitol. Do you know what I wrote? I wanted to die. That night and every night since, I've prayed to die. The priest says, I understand. You do you understand? I do, unless you're asking for my permission. No, I was just hoping. If I walk down the street next to Jack's body, maybe someone would be kind enough to do it for me. In front of the whole world, a famous life, a famous death, the priest says. Jackie says, I never wanted fame. I just became a Kennedy. <laughs> but the last scene is the one that I, I can't let go of. The priest asks her, why are you really here? And she says, I needed to talk. He says, you say you pray every night to die, that your children have no use for you, that you wish only to be with your husband, and yet I'm not burying you today. There comes a time in man's search for meaning when one realizes there are no answers. And when you come to that horrible, unavoidable realization, you accept it, or you kill yourself, or you simply stop searching. I have lived a blessed life. And yet, every night when I climb into bed, turn off the lights, and stare into the dark, I wonder, is this all there is? She says, you wonder? He says, every soul on this planet does. And then... When morning comes, we all wake up and make up the coffee. (laughs) She says, why do we bother? Because we do. You did this morning, and you will again tomorrow. But God, in his infinite wisdom, has made sure it is just enough for us. That's it. I'm going to finish with this a little bit from me here. We are here now. This is where we are. Can't be anywhere else. There's no point in spending energy blaming how we got here or resenting what is happening, what's being done or not done. There's no point in continuing to ask questions that can't be answered. There are no answers in the way that we want those answers. Why is this happening? What does it mean? How much longer will it last? How bad will it get? What will life be like after it's over? Will I and my family be okay and a thousand others? We were never promised those answers. And we don't get those answers. But continuing to live the principles we learned from Jesus, we get other answers that are much more powerful. As we continue to find beauty in each moment, as we cheer a friend, connect, laugh, retain our basic humanity, we get glimpses of who we really are. We remember why we're here. 
We can't help feeling the fear of uncertainty. But we start to remember that we are not the fear. We are the connection. Living the fear kills the connection. But living the connection keeps the fear at bay. doesn't kill it, but allows us to live fully in the presence of it. These are the only answers that ultimately matter at all. The ones born out of direct experience of connection with each other. The ones that make all our other questions fade like the stars at sunrise. And difficult times like these are not the enemy. But they are opportunities to see our real answers most clearly. That's our prayer. That's my prayer for all of us that these times will allow us to see the real answers of life most clearly. Not that we stop asking the questions, but we hold on to them lightly as we continue to act in a way that connects us and guides us to what we're really here to learn. Let's pray. Father, Every good thing comes from you. You are the source of all goodness. Everything that we label as evil, as bad in our lives, as pestilence, comes out of just the workings of this world, this universe, the way it's set up. Comes from the consequences of our choices and the choices of others. You are the way through. You are the method of escape through anything that we encounter in life. Help us with our own courage. Help us with our own resolve to be undeterred, undeflected in difficult times to keep acting for connection to keep acting for each other, to be willing to let go and lay down parts of ourselves for the good of others so that we can find you in that connection and know that we know that everything is all right. No matter how this turns out, everything will be all right in you. And all we have to do is stay in you. Thank you for everything that you've given us. Thank you for the example of all these people around us who are finding ways to do exactly this, to continue to act with love and humanity and connection so that we can see how we can do the same thing, so that we can be buoyed up and cheered up, so that we can rise above the isolation and sense of loneliness and disconnection, knowing that we are still part of everything that is in you. So, Father, thanks even for this technology. It's so ironic that this online technology that we have been decrying for some time now because it keeps us from real physical connection is now the means of keeping us together when that physical connection is no longer possible. Thank you for the technology, Lord. Thank you for the tools that we have to stay connected that we didn't have not very long ago. Keep us grateful for everything, everything that we have, everything that we can use, and let us use it all to connect more with you. 
And of course, Father, we ask for your continued blessing, even though we know that you withhold nothing ever. In our uncertainty, we ask anyway. Bless us, Father. Thank you for your love. And never let us forget that we can only love or do any of this because you loved us first and you continue to sustain us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, all of you at home and all of us here, why don't you take at least symbolic hands? <laughs> I guess if you're at home, you can, you can do that anyway. But let's all say this together. So you may feel a little strange just saying it to your computer screen, but do it anyway. All right? Whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday. Stay connected in any way that you can. Hopefully we'll see you on Tuesday night and we'll really see you on Tuesday night because we'll have two-way connection and Wednesday night. And then let us know what you would like to do on Sundays going forward so that we can be as relevant in your life as we possibly can. Thank you so much. We love you all. We'll see you very soon.